0: Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond at Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. We talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. This last week in October, we wanted to make sure that we touched on the fact that it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So we have an incredible interview for you guys. There's so much information in this interview. Really grab a pen and paper or make sure to listen to it again. We have Dr. Mindy Goldman, who's the chief clinical officer of MIDI Health. And she's also the former director of the Gynecological Center for Cancer Survivors at UCSF. Bridget and I had so many questions to ask her about breast cancer and the use of hormone therapy because we get asked so many times from our listeners I have a family history, I have a genetic mutation, I have. Had breast cancer? Am I a candidate for HRT? And she answers these questions and gives us so much information that Bridget and I were grateful for this. We listened more than we asked questions oh, yeah. on this one.
1: Yeah. Just, I mean, the types, you know, really went into depth, which was great for me because. I did not know the different types and which ones were more uh, sensitive to hormones. yeah. Yeah, and learning about the preventative steps that you can take was really beneficial too.
0: He goes into detail about ovarian and uterine cancer. So it's it's really an interesting and important conversation. And before we started, Bridget and I are excited to tell you guys, you know, we've been working with Melissa Gilbert and Modern Prairie for a while and we love them. We love the community. If you haven't checked out the app, which is free to download, they have a wonderful community on the Modern Prairie app. We'll, we'll have a link on our show notes for that. We're going to be the official podcast for modern prairie we're excited to be working with melissa and modern prairie what they are doing has so much synergy with what we are doing we're having these conversations that relate to women in midlife and beyond and the more people connected the stronger our voices are so bridget and i are thrilled to be working with them make sure to go over and check the app out And make sure you're following us on all forms of social media. We usually say this at the end, but we want to make sure that you guys follow us on Instagram, follow us on YouTube. And we would truly appreciate if you rate and review the podcast, you know, good rating, good review. Yeah. Thank
1: you for doing that. Yes. I'll, I'll just thank you beforehand. I'm just going to go ahead and thank you now. We were talking about,
0: you know, proactive. We're just, just going to proactively proactive.
1: thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> with that, let's get started with our conversation with Dr. Mindy Goldman. We'll talk to you after. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast. We have a really interesting conversation today with Dr. Mindy Goldman, who is chief clinical officer of MIDI Health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Goldman.
2: Thank you so very much. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Your expertise in um, hormones and breast cancer treatment, it's a conversation that we hear time and time again from women. I would like to start by just saying, what is like the number one or two question that women ask you when they're concerned about taking hormone therapy if they have a history of breast cancer?
2: I think there's a couple different couple different questions in there. So um, my specialty, I'm in ob by training. And before joining MIDI, uh, I have been on the faculty at UCSF where I run what's called the Gynecology Center for Cancer Survivors and At-Risk Women. I still work there very part-time, but I'm really at MIDI helping us uh, supervise our clinical care and hoping to launch a whole survivorship platform. But in my practice, both at UC and the types of patients that i am seeing at midi many of them have either had breast cancer or they have uh, they're at increased risk for breast cancer by having a family history or they have a genetic mutation that puts them at increased risk for breast cancer so the questions that i get often uh, they're often similar but they differ depending on which of those groups they follow fall into Certainly, the biggest one from cancer survivors is, I've had breast cancer. I've been told I just need to suffer. Is that really true? Is there anything that I can do to make myself feel better? For people that have a family history of breast cancer or they have a genetic mutation that puts them at increased risk for breast cancer, by far the most common question I hear is, I've been told I can't take hormones. I shouldn't take hormones because I'm already at increased risk. And is that true?
1: And so what are the options for that first group that are breast cancer survivors? if they have Like something? how do you answer
2: it?
0: Yeah. it. If, the, yeah. if the question gets asked, how do you answer it?
2: Sure. So one thing to realize is that breast cancer is not breast cancer is not breast cancer. And there are very different types of cancers. So one area that I think has a lot of misconception is what about DCIS, which is called ductal carcinoma in situ. And that means the abnormal cancerous type cells have not invaded the basement membrane of the cell, so it can't spread, which means you can never die of DCIS. It is a risk factor for getting invasive cancer, but it tends to be treated similar to cancer meaning people get lumpectomies, sometimes mastectomies, sometimes radiation, and they get put on drugs like tamoxifen. For people that have had DCIS, if it was treated with lumpectomy or a unilateral mastectomy, typically we don't recommend hormone therapy because they still have remaining breast tissue that's there and we know that that remaining breast tissue could be at risk. However, if someone had DCIS and they chose to get bilateral mastectomy, so there's no more breast tissue remaining or essentially no more, there's microscopic amounts, we know that the likelihood of getting invasive cancer after that surgery for DCIS is about 1% or less. And so in that situation, it is felt to be okay to give someone hormone replacement therapy. Then you get into what about invasive cancer. So two-thirds of breast cancers are sensitive to hormones. And that doesn't mean that hormones cause someone to get cancer, but it means that hormonal therapies will be used as part of the treatment to modify the tumor environment. And those hormonal therapies are drugs like tamoxifen, or there's another class of drugs, the aromatase inhibitors, drugs like letrozole or arimidex. When someone has that type of breast cancer, it is considered a contraindication to use hormones. Um, the concern is if you did use hormones, could it increase the risk of recurrence or could it impact survival? Now, even though it's considered a contraindication, um, there actually aren't great studies. Um, the big randomized control trials that have looked at that have actually shown mixed results but despite that, the general teaching and the general standard of care is if you've had hormone positive breast cancer, you should avoid hormonal therapy. But know that there are many options that are available. So there are prescription alternatives for a number of different drugs, low doses of some antidepressants, neuropathic pain relievers, anti seizure medicines, older studies with a blood pressure medicine and overactive bladder medicine, all those drugs, what they have in common is they cross the blood-brain barrier, and we think that they affect the temperature control area within the brain. And interestingly, for many of those drugs, the doses that are used are much lower than what the drug is typically intended for. So some of the antidepressants they used in higher doses to treat mood changes, but lower doses for hot flashes. Now, all of those are off-label, except there's one, uh, which was a brilliant marketing ploy. It is low-dose Paxil. Most people have heard of Paxil as an antidepressant, but they studied a lower dose for hot flashes, found it effective, got it through the FDA, and changed the name of the drug to Brisdelle so women didn't have to think they were on an antidepressant. It is the same drug, just a lower dose, and that is FDA-approved. And then finally, this year, what people are really excited about is there's a new drug that hit the market. It's called Fezlinatine. The trade name is Vioza. And this drug works by an entirely different mechanism. And it targets specifically what's called the candy neurons, which are directly involved in the hypothalamus in the brain that control temperature regulation. So it's the first drug that we know exactly how it works. It was studied not in cancer patients. It was studied in healthy menopausal women, found to be effective, got it through the FDA. People are so excited. They advertised for it at the Super Bowl this year. It became available in May of this year. Now, despite the fact that it hasn't been studied in breast cancer survivors It is not hormonal and there's no data that says, there's nothing that says it should be contraindicated or couldn't be used in breast cancer survivors. So this just adds yet another tool or another option that people have to treat their symptoms. Then there's lots of vitamins and herbs and integrative therapies that people have looked at. There's actually good studies showing a benefit to specific types of cognitive behavioral therapy. There's some studies showing benefits with yoga. There are herbs that have been looked at, probably the one that has some of the best data, still limited, but it's an uh, herbal uh, uh, herb called uh, black cohosh. So the biggest takeaway that I try to tell my patients who've had hormone positive breast cancer is do not let anyone tell you that just because you have breast cancer and your treatment may have thrown you into menopause, you had surgical menopause or chemotherapy put you into menopause. Don't let anyone tell you that you just have to suffer. There are lots and lots of options. Then you have people who have the less common, which is hormone negative breast cancer. Um, That's where I was saying breast cancer is not breast cancer is not breast cancer. So this type means the tumor is not sensitive to hormones, and so they don't use hormonal therapies to modify the tumor environment. Typically, these Tend to be more aggressive. So, uh, most often these women get uh, chemotherapy. But with this type of cancer, um, there are no studies that suggest that the use of hormones will influence the risk of recurrence or survival. We know the highest risk of recurrence is usually in the first couple of years. So, most times, most of the oncologists won't want their patients on hormones in that first couple of years but by five years, we say from that specific cancer, you're probably cured. Hormone positive disease, we tend not to use that term because you can sometimes see late recurrences 15, 20 years later. But with hormone negative disease, if by five years someone hasn't recurred, doesn't mean they couldn't get a new cancer, but they're likely cured from that cancer. So certainly at that point, it's a reasonable option to offer someone hormone therapy. And some oncologists will even allow their patients to get uh, hormone therapy around uh, three years. So again, I think a common misconception that people think all breast cancer is the same, it is just completely contraindicated. And I know this was a long explanation, but I hope it highlights that all, all breast cancer is not the same and that there are some breast cancer survivors who... Hormone therapy is uh, very reasonable uh, to consider.
1: Are there, I was curious about other cancers like ovarian or cervical cancer. Are there any risks involved with hormone therapy in those cancers?
2: Yeah, a lot of women have questions about whether they can use um, hormone therapy with other cancers and particularly gynecologic cancers. So um, in general, the answer is that hormone therapy can be used. There are a few cell types with ovarian cancer where it is more questionable. And part of that is that they sometimes use anti-hormone therapy as part of the treatment. And then with high-grade uterine cancers, um, typically with those more aggressive cell, those aggressive types. We don't recommend hormone therapy. But with the most common low-grade uterine cancers, that's actually the most common female cancer that we see, the most common gynecologic cancer with cervical, it's fine. Most ovarian, it's fine. Vaginal, vulvar, and then other types of cancers, unless they are using anti-hormones as part of the treatment, typically for most other cancers, the use of hormones is okay.
0: Just to clarify, with the non-hormonal, is that like triple negative breast cancer?
2: So when someone has breast cancer, they send the tumor to look at different markers. One is to see if it's sensitive to estrogen or progesterone. So that's considered hormone negative when it is not sensitive to either of those. The third marker is something called HER2-NU, and that looks at the Uh, It's a specific marker on the surface of this tumor cells. And when people have HER2-positive disease, they usually get some form of the drug Herceptin as part of their treatment. Triple negative is when someone has estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 negative. So it's called triple negative. And we sometimes see triple negative in um, uh, specifically in a brca one genetic mutation, you commonly can see triple negative disease.
0: I don't think you realize how much invaluable information you just gave our listeners, because so many women don't know where to go to get information like this. They don't have access to it, but they deserve the information. With You just mentioned BRCA. With the genetic testing, people talk a lot about family history, if you have a family history. What is considered like for example, I have an aunt that had breast cancer, but what is considered family history? Is it direct line? Is it cousins?
2: Yeah. So family history, um, we think of it most concerning when there is a first degree relative who had breast cancer, particularly mom or sister, in particularly in the premenopausal years, that's really concerning. However, You can also have a concerning family history where everyone's had cancer. Your aunt had cancer, your mom, your grandmother. You have multiple cousins with cancer. So one of the things that I think is important is when someone comes in with a family history, it's really important for providers to take a good family history. You need to ask who had cancer. There's a common misconception that maybe it only runs on the maternal side or the paternal side. You need to check both sides. You need to find out what type of cancer, what was the outcome, what was the age of diagnosis, and that helps you determine should you send your patient for genetic testing. Most family history of cancer doesn't mean that there's a genetic mutation. Only about 15 to 20 percent of the time when there is a familial association is it due to a genetic mutation. That varies a little bit depending on the type of cancer, Um, but for families that have those mutations, it's really important to determine that because there are preventative things that you could preventative steps that you could take that could prevent you from getting the cancer that runs in the family. So, again, really important that you see providers who understand this, ask the appropriate questions, send someone for genetic testing when it's indicated, and then also know how to counsel them.
1: And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back, right? You were saying preventative. So you're saying genetic testing. um, That's another, are there other steps they could take? I know, I know mammograms and everything. Uh, What
2: steps should they take for preventative? Yeah, so for people who are very high risk that have these genetic mutations, their risk of getting, so I'll talk about the most common one, which is a BRCA gene mutation. So in the general population, The risk for all women for getting breast cancer is about 13%. So it's one in eight women will have had breast cancer if we live to be 85. Um, Ovarian cancer, on the other hand, is pretty rare. The lifetime risk for all women is about one in 73 to one in 78. The problem with ovarian cancer is we don't have a good screening test and it's picked up in late stage disease for 75% of women. Um, Now, with these genetic mutations, with a BRCA gene mutation, which is the one we've known about the longest, we've known about that since the late 1990s, the lifetime risk of getting breast cancer is 70%. And there's two uh, BRCA uh, gene mutations. With BRCA1, the lifetime risk of ovarian is approximately 40%, and the lifetime risk of uh, ovarian for BRCA2 is approximately 20%. So if someone has a mutation because their lifetime risk is so high, there are guidelines from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network that say these people should be followed differently. So they actually get other types of screening. So for breast cancer, they get MRIs, not just mammograms. And they actually start their MRIs as early as age 25 or 10 years before the onset of the, of the disease in the family member. They don't start mammograms till age 30 because mammography is a lousy test in the 20s. There's a fair amount of controversy about screening for ovarian cancer. Usually that's done with an ultrasound to look at the ovaries. And there's a tumor marker that is elevated in the most common type of ovarian cancer. But unfortunately, there are no studies that say doing those ultrasounds and those tumor markers saves lives they have very high false positives. And so um, that's sort of being called into question whether we should be doing that. A lot of people wonder if MRIs are such a good and sensitive test, why don't we do it for everyone? And the problem is that they are so sensitive that they also have a very high false positive rate. So nationally, I've heard numbers as high as 40%. And that means 40% of women are going to get called back for Tests that make them anxious, they're expensive, they're painful, they do these core biopsies, and then that may cause scarring that make breast exams more difficult. So there are downsides to doing a test just because it exists. But for high-risk women, we sort of accept that there's a high false positive and we recommend it anyways. Now, if you're in a place where they do a lot of those MRIs, the false positive rate drops, and it's more like 15 to 20%. And there are studies now going on looking at these abbreviated MRI protocols that are cheaper, faster, and thought to have equivalent accuracy. So things are changing a lot in breast imaging. There's all sorts of studies going on looking at the use of AI to improve breast imaging, and that will probably, you know, change our recommendations in the next few years. But I think the take-home message uh, for your listeners is. If you're in that category where you are at higher risk, particularly you have a family history that could be suggestive of a genetic mutation, you want to be talking to your providers or reach out and and hopefully see an expert, come to people like us at MIDI where we can help to get you the appropriate genetic testing to see if you do have that because you would be followed very, very differently and there's steps you can do that can both you know, prevent you from getting cancer and save your life. Many people don't realize there are drugs that are FDA approved for prevention of breast cancer. And for premenopausal women, the drug tamoxifen is FDA approved and can decrease someone's risk somewhere in the range of 30 to 50 percent. For postmenopausal women, both tamoxifen and there's another drug called raloxifene that's FDA approved as an osteoporosis drug, but it's also FDA approved for prevention of breast cancer. And then this whole other class of drugs, the aromatase inhibitors, they have been shown to be more effective than tamoxifen in the treatment of breast cancer. And there are some trials that have shown them to be beneficial for prevention, even though they're not FDA approved. But I think a lot of people don't realize wow, I can take drugs to even prevent getting cancer. And then there's also a lot of lifestyle. Anyone who's coming in talking to me, I talk to them about the importance of regular exercise. We know, uh, and this is put out through the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. I've been lucky enough to be on their survivorship panel, and I chair their hormone panel and sexual functioning panel, being able to provide help provide guidance for oncology providers and, and cancer survivors. And They have put out specific amounts of exercise, um, 150 minutes a week, divided times, interval cardio, this sort of push your heart rate, come down, push your heart rate, come down, is thought to decrease risk of recurrence and improve survival in hormone positive breast cancer. I will tell people it is as important as popping your tamoxifen pill or your letrozole pill. And there's even some data that says it may be preventative for getting hormone-positive breast cancer and maybe even colon cancer. Then the other one we know is alcohol. Alcohol is a big risk for hormone-positive disease, the most common type of breast cancer. And so minimizing alcohol is really, really important. And that may be helpful both for someone who's had cancer, but someone who's looking to say, what are things that I can do that can maybe prevent me from getting cancer? What they don't have to do is avoid hormone replacement therapy. So there's no data that, and that leads to your very first question you asked, <laughs> um, is can they take hormones? So we don't have good studies that say the use of hormones in people who are at higher risk for breast cancer based on either a family history or a genetic mutation that that use of hormones adds on to that risk. Um, so they can safely take hormones That doesn't mean they don't need their close breast follow-up. They need to come in and get their clinical exams that are recommended for high-risk women, their imaging, whether that's 3D mammograms plus an MRI. If their providers say that they meet criteria for an MRI, they should be doing lifestyle things like minimizing alcohol, getting regular exercise, but it doesn't mean that they can't take hormones to treat their menopausal symptoms.
0: What about women who have gone through cancer and go through medical menopause? They might be in their 30s. They might be in their early 40s. What what options do they have?
2: Yeah, so for someone who's had breast cancer and got put into menopause early, whether that was from chemotherapy, whether that was surgical menopause, they fall into those same categories we talked about. So if they had hormone-positive breast cancer, we will tell them, look, look, you really aren't a candidate for hormone replacement therapy. If you've had hormone negative disease, you are a candidate. You potentially are a candidate. Again, we always work with someone's oncologist. There are all these other drug options that we talked about that can treat symptoms of menopause like hot flashes. There are vaginal hormones that could be used to treat Uh, vaginal symptoms like dryness and painful sex and there are certain vaginal hormones that are even okay when someone's got hormone positive disease. There are others we tend to avoid but there are some that are okay and I think the big thing that we do for women who are went through these treatments younger is we also talk to them specifically about some of the health risks with aging. So we know the number one cause of death for all of us is heart disease And we know that the estrogen that the ovaries produces protects against heart disease. And you don't see the risk of heart disease go up in women until after menopause. And then I think around age 65, it's thought to be similar in both men and women. Well, if you're made menopausal in your early 30s and the average age of menopause is 51, you may have to be concerned about does that mean I, I know you're worried about cancer and whenever someone has cancer, they're thinking, I'm going to die of cancer, but you want to do what you can to protect against heart disease. So there are modifiable risk factors for heart disease and there's non-modifiable. So the modifiable ones, those are the people I'm going to be checking to make sure their cholesterol's okay. I'm going to make sure their blood pressure is okay. I'm going to be talking to them about if they smoke, that they shouldn't be smoking if they are a cancer survivor where hormone therapy is, is okay, I will be offering hormone therapy because we do know for women who start hormones within 10 years of menopause that it does provide cardioprotection. So if they had hormone negative disease and they're a candidate or they had DCIS and bilateral mastectomies and they're having symptoms, I will probably recommend hormone therapy you can't change if you have a family history, but I'm gonna to wanna to make sure they maintain normal body weight. We're screening for rule out diabetes. They're, like I said, cholesterol, hypertension, smoking. The other big health risk we worry about with aging is bone loss. And you don't see the fractures in a young age, but it's a silent disease. And then if someone went through menopause early, maybe they're gonna develop early osteoporosis. And we know in the elderly, that that's a significant health risk. They fall, they can get hip fractures, they get laid up in bed, they can get pneumonia, and people can even die. So we need to do things to talk to people about bone protection. So there's specific amounts of exercise. So I talked about the interval cardio that's important for decreasing the risk of breast cancer recurrence and maybe in decreasing the risk of getting cancer in the first place, But there's specific exercise, you want weight-bearing exercise that can be helpful to maintain bone density. Calcium supplementation. You don't want too much. Too much actually has negative cardiac effects, but you want some calcium, oftentimes with vitamin D, weight-bearing exercise, we're going to institute early bone density testing. Guidelines now are in a healthy woman, you don't have to do bone density before age 65 unless they have risk factors. Um, But one of the risks is early early menopause. And some of the breast cancer drugs, like the aromatase inhibitors, those drugs actually have negative effects on bone density with a higher risk of fracture. So those survivors need to be getting regular bone densities while they're on their treatment. So the big thing is you need to individualize. And that's why it's important you want to be seeing someone who understands the area knows what are the health risks we're talking about, knows what are the treatment options, and don't let someone tell you nothing that you need to worry about in terms of your overall health and nothing that you can take to treat all of these symptoms.
1: With Health, um, a big thing, so many women don't have access to really good health care. So couldn't you talk about where MIDI how somebody could get in touch with MIDI Health and how they could get access to this really good health care?
2: We are a telehealth company that is focused in perimenopause and menopause, and we take health insurance. So that is what you know we realized to broadly be able to provide access you need to be able to be, you need to take health insurance. And in fact, we don't launch in a state until we get on the major insurance plans in the state. We're currently in 14 states and we'll be in all 50 by the end of the year. Um, Sometimes what puts us into a state is we partner with a health system where we will see people over telehealth to help manage their symptoms. And then we send back to the health system for, Uh, blood tests and mammograms and when they need their pap smears and things like that. And at MIDI, one of the things that I I oftentimes talk about, you know, I've been in practice now, this is 30 years, a long time at UCSF and it's been an incredible place to work. It's a great um, academic center, but I'm a better provider since I joined MIDI. And part of that is we cross cover with primary care. we realize that a lot of women can't get in to see both their women's health provider, but they also can't get in to see their primary care provider. It may take months. Sometimes they don't have a provider. And many of the issues and treatments that we provide in the perimenopause and menopause are impacted by general health issues. You need to know if someone has cardiovascular disease or if someone's got hypertension is at risk for stroke. So there's a big intertwining of those issues. And you can't just provide menopause without thinking about it. So at MIDI, we have both women's health experts and internal medicine experts, and we cross cover both. So in the past, when people would come in and tell me about their hair thinning or their weight gain, and I was relatively quick to say, go talk to your dermatologist or your primary care, we now talk about all those issues. So we're very proud of the fact we are Protocol driven. All of the guidelines we recommend are evidence based. They're consistent with all the large national organizations like the American College of OBGYN and the Menopause Society. I've written a number of our protocols and then we send them out to experts around the country to give us feedback in their area of expertise. We also have a naturopath that's part of MIDI that's helped us um, write our protocols uh, using evidence-based use of herbs and botanicals when there is evidence to support their use. We support first-level care for mood disorders like depression and anxiety. We don't do complex mental health, but first-level care, realizing, again, that can be hard uh, to get in to see a provider. And then certainly all of the classic um, hot flashes and sleep disturbance and mood changes and hair thinning, all the atypical symptoms. Much of our care is provided by nurse practitioners that are experts in this area. So they've all had years of training. And then even after working in women's health for a number of years, we put them through an extensive training through MIDI.
0: You know, the Menopause Society had their annual meeting a couple of weeks ago. Were you able to attend? I I was. Was there anything we were so jealous by the way was there anything that came up that was new research in the world of menopause and breast cancer that surprised you made you know made you aware of or was like i needed to let my patients know about this
2: i would say that um everything that they talked about we have already talked about uh at midi so i was i felt really comfortable with the protocols that we are developing Are consistent with the newest research that is out there and consistent with what our national guiding organization is saying. Um, I'll give you an example of areas where um, I noticed that was somewhat new. So, when someone takes HRT and they have a uterus, you need to give estrogen as the component of hormones that makes someone feel good, but you need to balance that with progesterone to protect the uterus from uterine cancer. And usually that progesterone is given in an oral pill. That's the most common. Sometimes in a, there's a patch of estrogen and progesterone. Sometimes we use off label use of a progesterone IUD. But people have wondered could you use vaginal progesterone when people can't tolerate oral drugs? They've had gastric bypass or they have problems with um, motility in their gut. And in the past, a lot of the societies hadn't come out with statements saying, is that okay? When we see people at MIDI, sometimes they've seen two or three other providers and they don't want to hear, we don't know. There's no data about that. We're not, you know, and so we had done the research and saw, yes, there actually are articles supporting that. And we, in our protocols, put out for people who don't tolerate those standard recommendations that, yes, you can consider vaginal progesterone to protect the uterus from uterine cancer. And I was pleased that I heard at the Menopause Society that they felt like that's a reasonable option as well. Um, I think with regards to breast cancer, people were talking about and are excited about this new drug, fezlinitant that it really is Just another option, and probably like the one because we understand how it works and how it targets hot flashes, that people are very excited that that's going to be a uh, significant treatment option that wasn't available before that will be covered by insurance. Hopefully, it's not yet (laughs) insurance plans uh, for breast cancer survivors. Uh, There were also talks about some different types of imaging like the um, limited, uh, breast MRI, uh, protocols, uh, that are going to be coming out. There were talks about what can be used for vaginal hormones in the setting of, uh, breast cancer. So there were a lot of really exciting areas. Um, and I'm always listening, uh, with, is there something that we need to adopt and make sure we are putting it into our MIDI protocols? Are we consistent with what they are recommending? And, um, just, it's a great organization. The, the talks are really high level. The science is really, really good. And, um, it was wonderful being there. Thank you so much for what you're doing, for what MIDI is doing and for
0: being on our show today, because this information has been invaluable. Thank you so much for being
2: here. Happy to.
0: Well, we want to thank Dr. Mindy Goldman for being a
2: guest
1: on our show with this important information. In you know, you may want to re-listen to it just to get that information down, get your pencil, get your paper, get your pen, whatever, and get this information down. It really was invaluable. And there still needs to be a lot of research done for breast cancer research and really research for any women's health issues. There there needs to be a lot more, but having people like Dr. Goldman around and Midi Health around It's an invaluable resource. So be sure that you check out our show notes. We're going to have links to all of that in our show notes and also links to Modern Prairie. So we're so excited to be partnering with them and being their official podcast. I'm so excited about that. I love what Modern Prairie does. They really go uh, out and they find women craftspeople, women artisans. And they have those products as well, as uh, as well as just a really great platform. We have all of these, as long as our guests agree, we have these videos on YouTube. So check that out. We also are putting up our conversations with Prime Women panels and clips from that as well. So make sure that you go to YouTube, go to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics channel on YouTube. Check that out. We'll have some clips on TikTok. We'll have some clips on
0: Instagram. Have a great week, guys. We will talk to you next time.
1: Bye.